Welcome to the Institute of Catholic Culture, a nonprofit Catholic organization dedicated to the re-evangelization of our society through educational and cultural programs offered to the public at no charge. This and other presentations, hundreds of hours of audio, are available for free on our website, www.instituteofcatholicculture.org. There you can listen to or download educational programs related to all aspects of our divine faith, and you can review our schedule of upcoming events. We hope you can join us in person. The handout reference during this presentation is available for download on the audio section of our website. Good, good to be here. And um, uh, we're going to be looking, of course, today is Tuesday, Holy Week, and we're going to look at what Jesus did on Tuesday of Holy Week, and it was a very full day for him. Um, let's begin with prayer. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Lord, I, I'm mindful that um, this day you confronted your opponents, and you confronted them with many parables and warnings. And in effect, you said to them, you've got to make a decision about me, and whatever you decide will determine your destiny. And uh, so you were um, very clear with them and very urgent with them. And so we pray that we'll recover some of that in the church. We're not too much that way today in the church. We don't seem to have the same degree of urgency or prophetic zeal that you had for souls. So help uh, help us to be better about that in the church today. And uh, as we learn from you today on this Tuesday of Holy Week, and, and we make this prayer, Jesus, in your holy name, you who are Lord forever and ever. Amen. Now, if you have your Bibles, one place to kind of keep them open would be Mark 11. Um, and, and we're going to be going into Mark 12 as well. I might, you know, refer to a passage from some other gospel, but the main bulk of the quotations today will be from Mark 11 and 12. Okay. Uh, we we Let's remember what happened the last two days. As you know, on Sunday, Palm Sunday, he made a triumphal entry. And people, many people welcomed him with great zeal, waving palm branches and so on, and calling him the king of glory. And um, he uh, and the uh, Hosanna to the son of David. And um, we uh, he, after the he, after that entrance, it was already late in the day. So he looked into the temple area, made some observations and went up to Bethany. Uh, Monday morning, he came down the hill. He um, saw ancient Jerusalem and he wept because they had not understood the, the day or the time of their visitation. And had they, you know, it would have made for their peace, but now they would not. He, he knows that they have stubbornly refused him, corporately speaking. Hmm? On the way further down, he sees a fig tree, and finding no figs in the branches, he curses it. And um, we'll see that tree in a minute here on Tuesday. Um, he went down, though, and the main event was he went down into the temple area, and he cleansed the temple. And we talked a lot about what that meant, what was the significance of it, and uh, uh, what it. Uh, why was he angry? Um, what what was the significance of throwing the tables and stuff? We call we talked about prophetic action, and then we also talked a little bit about um, the, the fundamental meaning that temple worship is over. I am the temple. I am the altar. I am the lamb. I am the priest. You know, and so all those things were pointing to Christ. And now that he's here. Uh, they don't need to go on anymore, right? Um, any more than if you had, say, a picture of a loved one uh, that you looked at every day, but now they're here. You don't keep looking at just the picture. You turn to the loved one, right? And you look at them. You behold their actual face. So this would be, again, uh, the, the, the what went on yesterday. So 
this morning, about, last, at the end, he went back up to Bethany, spent the night there in Bethany, probably at the house of Martha, Mary, and Lazarus, where he was accustomed to stay. All right. So today, this morning, early Tuesday morning, he, he got up early as they do in that culture uh, with the sunrise around 6 a.m. And, um, and it says here um, from Mark 11 and verse 20, as they were walking back in the morning toward Jerusalem, they saw the fig tree withered from its roots. And Peter remembered it and said, look, Rabbi, the fig tree you cursed has withered. See, and remember what this, this, this symbolizes, it symbolizes uh, Israel, um, where he looked for the fruits of justice, of faith, of love, of mercy. Um, finding none, he cursed the tree, and now it's withered. See, it is withered, and so on. So we see again uh, this ominous sign, you know. He, he pronounced uh, a great, and he wept as he did so, remember, but he pronounced a great destruction that was coming upon, upon uh, Jerusalem one day because of their lack of faith. All right. Now then, um, we see that they come further down the hill, um, and uh, they cross the Kidron Valley. And as you know, if you've ever been there before, you kind of go up into the city there through a gate, and you're literally right at the foot of the Temple Mount. And so it's not far, right, right across the Kidron Valley to be right there in the temple. So he goes up the grand steps and he's in the courts of the temple now. And he's con immediately confronted by the temple leaders early this morning about what he did yesterday. So I'm picking up with Mark 11 and the 27th verse. At their return to Jerusalem, Jesus was walking in the temple courts and the chief priest, the scribes and the elders came up to him. By what authority are you doing these things, he, they asked, and who gave you the authority to do them? Now, we'll stop there for a minute. You'll notice again, they don't say, they don't just simply accuse him of vandalism. Uh, they don't simply accuse him of public dis of acting in a publicly disorderly way. Um, they, they seem to be hinting at you did a prophetic action. What, who gave you the authority of being a prophet? You know, what's your authority? How do you... Who, how do you claim to be a prophet? All right. So you notice again, they're not so much immediately accusing him of vandalism or so on. And that's why I was careful to explain to you yesterday that don't just see this as an angry outburst, a temper tantrum, uh, a pointless act of violence. The pro prophets did things like this to call attention to either injustice or to something that uh, that the people needed to be taking warning about. Okay. Now, uh, so the next day, as he comes in, they can kind of confront him. You clearly engaged in a prophetic action yesterday. By what authority do you call yourself a prophet? And by what authority did you therefore engage in this action? Okay. Now, he then says, he does a masterful thing here, right? <laughs> I says, um, I, will, I will ask you one question, said Jesus. And if you will answer me, then I will tell you by what authority I am doing these things. So the question he asked is, the baptism of John, was it from heaven or from men? Answer me. Then they huddle up and they deliberate among themselves what, should, what they should answer. They, they thought to themselves, if we say from heaven, he, he will ask, then why did you not believe in John? But if we say from men, well, they were afraid of what the crowd would say, right? Um, for all the people in, in, in Judea uh, feared John and held him to be truly a prophet. So they answered Jesus, we don't know. 
And Jesus replied, then neither will I tell you by what authority I am doing these things. So in other words, he's trying to, he's turned the table on them. He says, look, you don't, you don't really want an answer from me so for, you, for you to put your faith in me. You're not really looking for the answer. You're just trying to trap me. And I'll tell you right now, you treated John the Baptist the same way, didn't you? You know, you hated his guts, but you feared the people's opinion because, you know, they, 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 your power and your money is rooted in them. But I'm telling you right now, um, you rejected John and you're going to reject me. At the end of the day, I'm not going to answer your question. You're not really asking a legitimate question. Uh, by the way, Jesus had given them constant proof of his divinity and of his glory and messiahship, right? What were the four basic proofs he often gave them? The works that I do. The scriptures that I fulfilled, which testify to me, uh, John the Baptist's testimony, whom you all revered as a prophet, and finally, the Father speaking in your heart. These are the four testimonies or witnesses to who I am, all right? You know who I am, and I've been telling you who I am. Why are you asking it again? Because you don't really want to know the answer. You just want to trap me, all right? So we see that they confront him in the temple here, and they're looking for some pretext by which to arrest him. Now, they, they do this uh, because, again, remember, they're afraid of the crowd, see? And they're going to try different techniques now to unsettle Jesus. But Jesus, before, he, he, before they ask him more questions, he tells them a few parables. He says, let me tell you all a few parables. You, you temple leaders, you know, he says, I noticed that uh, yeah, there are Sadducees, there are Pharisees, uh, there, there, there are, are uh, um, you know, members of the um, Sanhedrin. And, you know, and none of you really get along with each other. You seem to only agree on one thing. You don't like me. <laughs> all right. But so with all of them present, he tells them some parables. And these parables are very familiar to you. Right. So the first one is there was a man who had two sons. This is from, um, by the way, this is from Matthew. All right. Matthew 21. We'll be going back to Mark in a minute. But from Matthew 21, he first, the first parable he told them was this. He said, what do you think? There was a man who had two sons. And he went to the first one and said, son, go work in the vineyard today. And the son said, I will not. And he replied, uh, he replied, but later he changed his mind and he went in and he worked. Then the man went to the second son and told him the same thing. He said, I will go in, sir. But he did not go. Which of the two did his father's will? The first one, they answered. And then Jesus said to him, said to them, truly, then I tell you, tax collectors and prostitutes are entering the kingdom of God before you. For John came to you in a righteous way and you did not believe him but the tax collectors and the prostitutes did. And even after that, you, after you saw this, you did not repent and believe in him. So again, he's saying to the, he's trying to shame them. He's saying, don't you understand, you know, you, you, you give God lip service. You say, oh yes, we will do the will of God, but you don't really do it because you're not believing in the son, the Messiah that he sent. I, he sent me to you and you're refusing to believe in him. So you're, you're saying you're paying him lip service, but look at these tax collectors and these prostitutes and they're entering the kingdom of heaven before you. Because even though at one point in their life, they said, I will not follow God's will. I will live a sinful life. But they heard and they repented and they went into the vineyard and they're doing it ahead of you. And even that doesn't shame you. Even that doesn't shame you. It ought to shame you uh, and bring you into the kingdom. So he's confronting them at their stubbornness, at their lack of repentance, their lack of belief. Uh, they heard the testimony of John the Baptist. And John the Baptist pointed to me and said, he's the Messiah. And they repented and they believed. And they're ahead of you. They're, they're, right now, they're holier than you are. You're paying God lip service, you see. So he's confronting them, right, uh, with this parable, all right? Now, um, he then tells another parable that's also very familiar. We're back to Mark now, 
And we've begun, we've opened up in the 12th chapter. And remember, he's got all these temple leaders and folks standing in front of him. This is Tuesday morning, right? He says, a man planted a vineyard. He, he put a wall around it. He dug out a wine vat. He built a watchtower. Then he rented it and rented it out to some tenants, and he went away on a journey. Now, of course, what he's talking about there, that's Israel, right? That's his, that's his vineyard, okay? Then he rented it and went to some tenants and went away on a journey. And at harvest time, he sent a servant. Now, the servants are the prophets. He sent the servant to, uh, to the tenants to collect his share of the fruit of the vineyard which should be justice, mercy, love, a chastity, and so on, right? But they seized the servant and beat him and sent him away empty-handed. They sent him another servant, and they struck him over the head and mistreated him shamefully. He sent them still another, and this one they killed. And he sent them many others. Some they beat, others they killed. Finally, having one beloved son, he sent him to them. And they said, they will respect my son. And he, he said, but the tenants said to one another, this is the heir. Come, let's kill him and have the, his inheritance will be ours. So they seized the son, killed him, and threw him out of the vineyard. Now, what then will the owner of that vineyard do? And the, the scribes and the Pharisees, they're answering, say, he will come and kill those tenants and give the vineyard to others. And Jesus answers them, have you never read the scripture, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone? And this is from the Lord and it's a marvel in our eyes. So you see, they he, they condemn themselves. They're so they're so dense they can't even see that they're the subject of this of this parable. <laughs> they're the ones who are seizing the prophets and killing and stoning some and beating others and, and and treating them shamefully. And they're the ones who finally, when the sun comes, plot now to kill him and think that they're going to have the inheritance all to themselves. No, the owner's going to take it from them and and he's going to he's going to put them to a shameful death and give their inheritance to others who will yield profit at the, at the proper time. Again, what is the Lord saying to them? You have got to make a decision, and your entire destiny rests on this decision. Do you understand? We are coming now to the fulcrum of all human history. I am here teaching you in the temple today. By Friday, I'm going to be on a cross. You have to understand we're at the fulcrum of all human history, and it's your entire destiny is going to rise and fall based on what, what side you're on in this question of me. You've got to make a decision. So he's urgently calling them to make a decision uh, and, and to make the right decision, right? And so on. So do you, do you hear his urgency? Do you see these how pointed these parables are, right? Okay. So we're not done here. He's got, he's got a bunch, bunch more that he's also uh, making, right? Uh, but 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 before I go to the next one, I want to ask you again: Do you, do you do you think that you hear urgency like this in the church today from our leaders as a general norm? You know, and when I say our leaders, I don't just mean bishops and priests. I'm talking about parents. Well, you know how kids are today; they just don't like to go to church. You know, you know I tried my best, tried to raise them up. You know, you know how kids are. And, eh, you know, and, and so, if we're not careful, we fall into a very blasé attitude. But you see. The Lord is battling for their souls. He's not just arguing with them. He's trying to make it clear to them, don't you understand what you're doing here? You see, my father's a vineyard owner. Israel is his vineyard. And you are the wicked tenant owners or tenant farmers who are doing terrible things. And you need to repent. And you need to be like 
You need to be like those, uh, you know, the, the the prostitutes and the tax collectors who hear the call and go into the vineyard and stop thinking that just lip service is going to get you anywhere. You see, oh, this is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. And we're, we're going to go through all the liturgy, but you don't really mean it. You're, you're, you're going to go to hell. You're going to go to hell. And we'll see at the very end, he, he says just that much. He says, how are you to avoid being sentenced to hell? So uh, this is not just arguing, being mean-spirited and calling them names. He's in a battle for their souls. And we've kind of lost that sense of battle today. Now, I'm not saying our first approach when we go to people is to immediately get angry and shake our fists and warn them. We have to work on, we have to use different tactics at different times. But at the end of the day, you know, are we even a tenth as urgent as as the Lord is here? Okay, here comes another parable. It's very, very familiar to you. He says he tells them yet another parable. Uh, this is from, um, let's see, um, this is from Matthew in, tw- in the 22nd verse, all right, uh, 22nd chapter. Once again, Jesus spoke to them in a parable. The kingdom of heaven is like a king who prepared a wedding for his uh, son. And he sent out his servants to call those he had invited to the banquet, but they refused to come. So who was the king? The Lord. Who were the people invited? The Jewish people. He sent out his servants. Who are the servants? The prophets. To call those who had invited to the banquet, but they refused to come. Again, he sent out other servants and said, tell those who have I invited that I prepared my dinner. My oxen and fatlings have been killed and everything is ready. Come to the wedding banquet. But they paid no attention and went away, one to his field, the other to his business. The rest seized his servants and mistreated them and killed them. Now, the king was enraged then, and he sent his troops to destroy those murderers and burn their city. Whoa. Now, by the way, you see, this is Jesus telling this, right? But you see, once again, is this not exactly what happened 40 years later when the Romans uh, entered Jerusalem, destroyed the city, and set it afire? See? So the, the, the Lord is saying, you see, you have to understand you've been invited to a wedding banquet, and your refusal to come seals your destiny. This isn't just some little party you can skip. This is the king's banquet of the son who's been sent to save you. And you will either enter this wedding banquet and be part of the wedding feast, or you will lose everything. See? Message received? Okay. Um, There is here, therefore, for all of us, uh, the the passage goes on. He says here... um, um, he says here, um, so, so it says, uh, the wedding banquet was ready, but those I invited were not worthy. Go, therefore, to the crossroads and invite to the banquet as many as you can find. So the servants went out into the streets and gathered everyone they could find, both the evil and the good. And the wedding hall was filled with guests. Uh, but the king came and said to the guests, uh, when he, the king came and, and saw the guests, he spotted a man who was not dressed in wedding clothes. So he said, so there's a man that was not wearing wedding clothes. And he said, friend, how did you get in here without wedding clothes? But the man who was speechless, the man was speechless. And then the king told the servants, tie him up then hand and foot and throw him outside into the outer darkness where there'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth for many are called, but fewer are chosen. Okay, now this second half, of course, when the, when the original invited guest largely rejected the invitation, namely the Jewish people, the Lord then says, sends to his prophets, bring in all the Gentiles now. So the place, that's us. Are you, are you, most of us here probably trace our origin to the, not to the Jewish people, but to the, but to the Gentiles. But either way, the point is that 
this is the call of the Gentiles, right? But even once the Gentiles are called, of course, they're called to be clothed in the garments of righteousness, right? So that um, the, the wedding banquet or the wedding feast is prepared and people are expected to wear their wedding clothing. Now, the, the, this garment, of course, is given to us by the Lord. It's supplied to us at our baptism. So we have this, uh, we have this um, uh, garment that we're expected to wear. It's the garment of righteousness. And so when the child is baptized, we say, see in this garment you wear the outward sign of your Christian dignity with your parents and godparents to help you bring this dignity unstained to the judgment seat of Christ. See? So we have then this white garment that symbolizes the righteousness of the saints. Now, we're supposed to be wearing the garment, and if we're not out, see, uh, we can't be in the wedding feast. So these are tough parables, but again, at the end of the day, the Lord is trying to zealously summon people to understand you have decisions to make. And um, I'm about to go to the cross to save the world, and you're going to be on one side of that equation or the other. And you better be on the right side. You better be on the right side, okay? All right. Now, we next come, we're back to Mark's gospel in the 12th chapter. And <laughs> there are these different groups. There's Sadducees there. There's Pharisees there. Um, there are other temple leaders, um, scribes. Um, the Sadducees almost had nothing in common with the Pharisees, except that they both agreed Jesus has to go. So the Sadducees now try to take their stab at Jesus, right? <laughs> and so they present this parable. And since you're pretty familiar with it, I'm not going to read the whole thing. But remember the parable? There was a, a woman who got, had seven different husbands, and she didn't have any children by any of them. <laughs> and the, the Sadducees say, okay, at the resurrection of the dead that you're running around talking about, which they didn't even believe in, um, who's, uh, who's husband, uh, who, who be your husband? <laughs> and they're trying to make the whole idea of heaven look ridiculous. And Jesus says to them, are you not badly mistaken? You understand neither the scriptures nor the power of God. You see, when people go to heaven, they don't live like, they live like the angels. They are not given or, or whatever in marriage, but they live like the angels. They live chastely and so on. Now, by the way, don't misunderstand that verse. I mean, that doesn't mean that your husband or wife will just be some other you know, stranger in heaven or no different to you than anybody else. Look, heaven perfects earthly relationships. It does not destroy them, okay? So don't, don't misunderstand. What the Lord is trying to teach there, though, is that these are not problems in heaven about if a person was married more than once because the spouse died. Don't worry about that. That's, that's not going to be a big worry up in heaven, all right? You're taking an earthly concern and you're casting it up into heaven and don't read much more into it than that all right um okay there's no jealousy in heaven between you know different people and stuff like that do you, do you follow okay but don't think that oh well my husband and i won't be married in heaven and and uh we'll, we'll be our, our relationship with each other be no different than our relationship with others no that's not true it'll be perfected you'll have understanding and love and appreciation and respect like you've never had on this earth It'll be beautifully, beautifully uh, perfected, okay? Now, <clears throat> but basically, again, uh, he says, and as for you, if you, since you Sadducees reject the resurrection of the body, let me, let me say to you, let me ask you a question. Is God a God of the living or a God of the dead? I'm reading here from Mark 12, all right? Is God a God of the living or a God of the dead? He's, of course, he's a God of the living. Um, all right, well, then why does he call himself the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, who were more than 400 years dead when he said that to Moses? Why would he call himself that? For to him, all are alive. See? And so Jesus takes a passage from 
uh, the Pentateuch. They only accepted the first five books of the Bible and takes that passage and shows to them that already it's pointing to the fact that somehow in God, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are still alive. All right. So he, he points to them. So they're trying to make his teaching look ridiculous. So imagine the scenario now on this Tuesday morning where they're gathered there in the temple. We're probably into the early, maybe lunchtime or early afternoon now. And we're seeing that all these crowds are surrounding and the scribes and the Pharisees are stepping up and they're confronting Jesus. They're trying to make him look bad. They're trying to uh, put him put him in bad favor in the eyes of other people. And he's laying them out and warning them uh, that they've got to make a decision. All right, so we move on next to another parable uh, where they try to trap him. There are a couple of other parables I'm going to pass over for now, okay? Um, it's just, it's just, if we tried to do them all, we'd be here a lot longer than an hour. Okay. So now they sent the Pharisees and the Herodians. Now the Pharisees and the Herodians didn't speak to each other. In fact, they would almost get fisticuffs anytime they see each other. (laughs) They only agree on one thing. Jesus has to go. So the Pharisees and the Herodians, uh, they, they, uh, they, they team up. (laughs) Now this this shows you, all right? I mean, this shows you the level of a hatred and annoyance at this upstart Jesus who's coming to upset the apple cart and their little gravy train, okay? And they, they imagine the Herodians and the Pharisees teaming up. Unthinkable, unthinkable, mortal enemies. All right, they team up. They, so they sent some of the Pharisees and the Herodians to try to catch Jesus in his words. Teacher, they said, we know that you are an honest man, swayed by no one. Indeed, you are impartial and you teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. Now then, is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or not? Okay. Now, uh, Jesus saw their hypocrisy. Now, of course, what they're trying to do is, you know, if he says you don't got to pay taxes to Caesar, they can signal the Roman officials to come over and arrest him for sedition. All right. If he says that... um, uh, you know, you, you you should pay the taxes, then the crowd will turn against him, ah, like that. Okay, so they, 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 they're they trying to trap him. Either way, either get rid of the crowds or be able to signal the Romans to come and arrest him for sedition. Now, so should we pay taxes to Caesar or not? But Jesus saw through their hypocrisy and said, why are you testing me? Bring me the denarius to inspect. So they brought it to him. Now, by the way, what are they doing with the denarius? In their coin, in their why they what yeah, they're more than willing to work with the Roman Empire and use their coins and walk on their paved roads and and they enjoy the Pax Romana. They can shake their fists all they want at the Roman Empire, but by God, they sure do uh, use it use it to make money and and all that. So you know they're a bunch of hypocrites. Okay, is the point now? Uh, so they dig in their pocket, and of course they find a denarius and said, Jesus says, "Bring me the coin." So they brought it. Whose likeness is this? And whose inscription? Caesar's, they answered. Then Jesus so told them, then give to Caesar what is Caesar's and give to God what is God, what is God's. And they marveled at him. All right. So again, um, we see these parables or they're trying to either they're trying to trap Jesus and he's preaching back at them with great authority. And um, he's um, he's um, uh, there's, there's this confrontation going back and forth. Now, would you, if, if, if you uh, didn't know anything about Tuesday of Holy Week, uh, would you have thought all this stuff was going on on Tuesday of Holy Week? You know, most people, because this is just, this is just not, even our liturgy, our liturgical readings, at least in the Western Roman Rite, are not particularly helpful. They don't really plug into the day. Um, in fact, 
the um, the the um, uh, today's readings at the in the Roman Rite were from Holy Thursday. Um, and yesterday's reading was from from Saturday before Palm Sunday. So the readings that are set for the liturgies don't help us very much. I'm told that part of the reason for that is that there were certain stational churches that were uh, that that influenced what readings got picked for those days. But at the end of the day. Um, you probably would never have thought all this went on on Tuesday before the crucifixion. But you see, though, that they've confronted him about the cleansing of the temple, and they're trying to trap him. They're trying to either get him arrested or have the crowds take him away, uh, where they can then have him arrested quietly and lead him off uh, to the temple guards. And that's what they're trying to do here, and they're being very unsuccessful. All right. Now, there's some other parables that are told here that... um, you know, which, which is the most important commandment of the law, and, and Jesus answers with the Shema, and the scribe is kind of surprised that Jesus answered in such an orthodox way, and he kind of says, well, I guess, you know, uh, that you've answered well, Rabbi. <laughs> you know, he tried to get Jesus to answer some strange question, but he didn't, and, and Jesus said to him, you're not far from the kingdom. <laughs> and uh, in other words, maybe I, can, maybe I can get one convert here today, right? Okay, so that's that parable, um, <clears throat> and um, then finally, the, uh, the, the leaders come and they, they, they make, this is from Mark 12 and verse 35. While Jesus was making all these teachings in the temple court, he asked, how is it that the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? Speaking by the Holy Spirit, David himself declared, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right until I put your enemies under your feet. David himself then calls him Lord. So how can he be David's son? And the large crowd listened to him with delight. And so, again, they're talking about all the different, um, uh, whether Jesus is from the right tribe and from this or that. or what, And they're all mistaken about where he was born. He was born in Bethlehem in the city of David. They think he's come from Galilee and all of these things are confusing. But he said he's not, he can't be David's son and all these things. And they're wrong about that. But even beyond that, he says, you know, David doesn't call him my son, doesn't call the Messiah my son. He calls him my Lord, my Lord. And so, again, Jesus is already pointing to his divinity and so on. And so, once again, it says here, the large crowd listening heard him with delight because he's, he's just set these, these religious leaders packing. Every argument they trotted out, every argument they tried to, uh, you know, he would turn it on them. And he's also then, uh, he also then is very searing in his indignation uh, at their hypocrisy and their stubbornness of heart, their refusal just utter refusal to accept that he's fulfilled scriptures, that he's worked miracles, that he he had the testimony of John the Baptist, and that the Father is speaking in their hearts right now, and they're stubbornly refusing. And that leads then to the very dramatic conclusion of this Tuesday uh, in the temple courts. Um, Jesus gives a series of seven woes, seven woes. Now, they're too lengthy to completely read here. But I want to just read some highlights towards the end. Now, again, we would not probably preach this way today. (laughs) All right. But I want you to remember, Jesus is using strong medicine because this is required. Only strong medicine will work at this point. And um, so this is is what he says. I'm reading now from, from Matthew 23. You snakes, you brood of vipers. How will you escape being condemned to hell? 
Therefore, I'm sending you prophets and sages and teachers, but some of them you will kill and crucify. Others you will flog in your synagogues and pursue from town to town. And so upon you will come all the righteous blood that has been shed on this earth, from the blood of the righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, uh, son of Berechiah, whom you murdered right here in the temple, between the temple and the altar. Truly, I tell you, all that blood will come upon this generation. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you slay the prophets, you stone those sent to you. How often I would have longed to gather your children together like a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were, but you were not willing. Look now, your house is about to be left desolate, for I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And he finishes, his, he says, that's, it's kind of like the, uh, the attorney finishing his uh, words to the jury, you know. Um, now, <laughs> we might have some humor here for a minute. You, you've heard me on this before, but <laughs> this doesn't sound like the welcoming church. <laughs> I mean, can you imagine Jesus walking into a typical parish evangelization committee meeting, you know? Um, oh, welcome. Your name is what? Jesus. Oh, that's a lovely name. Jesus. I think I've heard that name before. Well, Jesus, Mr. Jesus, have a seat. Welcome to our evangelization meeting. Now, let's have some ideas about how are we going to, uh, what will be our theme for the evangelization uh, year before us? And um, uh, someone says, I think we should say all are still welcome. You know, and Jesus says, well, I think we should say repent and believe the gospel. <laughs> uh, Mr. Um, Jesus, is it? Repentance is not a welcoming word. We don't use words like that here. Um, we have to send you, it looks like, to training. Um, you, you, you'll have to take our three-day uh, training for evangelization. And you will learn that we do not talk about sins or needs of repentance. We simply say all are welcome. Okay, you get the idea. Now, what I'm trying to do here is not just poke fun, but do you see, in a way, how far we've gotten from the urgency of Jesus and the prophets. Now, I'm not trying to say we should, just, you know, you brood of vipers, you snakes, and that's, that's not gonna usually work in our culture. But could we at least come a little bit closer to some of that urgency, at least at certain times? Not every homily should be haranguing, you know, but again, every sermon should afflict the comfortable and comfort the afflicted, and we're all a little bit of both. And um, the goal isn't just to, you know, make people feel nice and happy, the goal is to call them to repentance. They have a decision to make, and their entire internal destiny rests on it. And this is what Jesus is dealing with here. He's saying to them, do you understand what's about to unfold in the next few days? See? And you're going to be either with me at the cross, or you're going to be beneath that cross jeering at me. But I tell you, heaven or hell will be yours, depending on that. And you've got to decide now. And you just can't go on living in sin and living in stubbornness and refusing my message and think that you're going to get home. And by the way, Dr. Ralph Martin is going to be coming out with a book um, about the, the Jesus as prophet. And he's written it for priests because he said that uh, we priests um, <clears throat> have, um, and, and bishops as well, have slipped away from the office of prophet. We, we, we call ourselves teachers, but there's a difference between teaching and prophesying. Teachers, you know, an atheist could teach the faith. I mean, not well, but I mean, they, you know, but a prophet... Thus saith the Lord, 
This is a word for our salvation, brothers and sisters. And we will either accept it or reject it. And our eternal destiny, that's a prophet talking, see? You could be given the same information, but you're speaking with authority. Because in your, in your, in your own life, you've tested this word and found it true. And it's not just priests and bishops, it's parents, it's grandparents. And we've got to begin to get a little bit closer. Now, we're not going to get away with calling people broods of vipers. And so I wouldn't quote it directly. But I would say that somewhere along the line, you know, there are, there are just times where a little bit of anger, uh, experience of strong disappointment, um, warnings about hell. We've got to be get, get back to some of that because Jesus spoke like that. See, he spoke like that. He said, you brood of vipers. How are you to avoid being sentenced to hell? See? Sometimes you can do it in lighter ways. Like you say, listen, my brother, my sister, my daughter, my son, I say to my people, I love you too much to lie to you. You know, and then we, I have to tell you something. There are not 50 genders. It's just, that's a lie. That is a lie. There are only two sexes. God made us male and female. See, that's right out of scripture. Anything contrary to that is a lie. It's not another opinion. It's not a way of thinking. It's a lie. See? And you don't, so you don't have to yell and scream and call them brood of vipers, but you can be earnest and say, no, the God, I've met God, and he, did, he didn't, he, I know he didn't set it up that way, because that what was just said, that 50 genders, that's contrary to his word. So we can be clear about that. That's, that's a lie. Away with it. Okay, well, anyway, you get the idea. We almost never talk like this. We're too afraid. We're too afraid. Well, let me wrap up now what, what takes place um, that, that incredible, and by the way, you would be, uh, if you want to read the lengthier, you know, set of these uh, um, woes, it's, it's in the 22nd, uh, 23rd chapter of Matthew's gospel. I just read you some of the last sections of it, but there were actually seven woes that he, he gave to those gathered in front of him. All right. Woe to you. Woe to you. All right. Now, Jesus then. Um, left, and I'm, I'm reading now again from Matthew. Jesus then left the temple after all this afternoon, morning and afternoon of teaching there on this Tuesday and was walking away with his disciples. Uh, and his disciples came up and they called his attention to the buildings, the beautiful buildings of the temple. And he said, do you see all these things? He said, truly, I tell you, there'll be not one stone left upon another that will not be thrown down. Now, it says that they made them the crossing to, they crossed the Kidron Valley and they went back up to the Mount of Olives. Have any of you been up to the Paternoster Church up there in the mountain, the top of the Mount of Olives? Um, it's a kind of a monastery-like thing and all the different languages of the Our Father are there. It's like a big garden. It is in that place where Jesus sat and probably gave the Mount Olivet Discourse. Because at the top of the hill, they looked back at the city and they said, Rabbi, you said that the temple would be destroyed. When will it happen? Tell us how and when will it happen? And, um, and he said, and he gives the, the Mount Olivet Discourse, uh, which is a lengthy passage, which I can't read here. He goes on an entire chapter in each of the Gospels. But, you know, you know the basics of it. He says, there'll be wars and rumors of wars. Nation will rise against nation. Um, there will be um, uh, signs in the heavens. There'll be earthquakes and famines, and uh, there'll, there'll be um, um, you know earth. You know all sorts of things will come. Um, and um, but when you see Jerusalem surrounded by an army, know that her end is near. And if you're on your rooftop, don't go back down in your house to get your stuff. Just get out while the getting's good. If you're out in the field, don't go back into the town to get things. Just get out. Get out, because Jerusalem is is to be destroyed. And um, and so um, he uh, he gave all these predictions, you see. And um, then um, 
so it, it is said, by the way, that in 70 AD, when this actually did happen, not one Christian lost their life, according to Eusebius, because they had received a prophecy from Jesus, namely the Mount Olivet Discourse, and none of them uh, were mistaken to think that Jerusalem was going to survive. So they all left before the gates were closed. And they went and they lived in the Transjordan in a city called Pella. And they waited out the war that lasted three and a half years. Okay, now it says finally then at this night, uh, he left and he went up, uh, um, up, up the Mount of Olives, back up to Bethany for the night. And that brings, um, that brings Tuesday to an end. All right, now, a lot there, a lot there. And again, I simply ask you sort of rhetorically at this point, would that, if you were thinking of Tuesday of a Holy Week, uh, does that what would have come to your mind? But notice he sat there extensively teaching. He's kind of giving his closing arguments isn't he? here, isn't he, right? He's saying, look, I've been preaching. I've been teaching. I've been working miracles. I've been fulfilling scriptures. I've healed you. Um, I've, I've preached to you. I've called to you. Uh, I've summoned you. Uh, it's decision time. And um, in three days, I'll be on a cross. And you'll either be beneath that cross jeering me or you'll be near that cross weeping for what your sins have done. But you, there's, there's no third team on the field. You've got to make a decision. All right. And that's kind of the nature of this Tuesday. All right. Uh, now, there may be some questions. Andy, you want to help me to work through this? Yeah. Great. Thank you, Monsignor. Um, this is a, a, a connected with this is like if, if that tone is shocking us, Monsignor made a good point on Saturday, which is it, it's a sign that we need to become a little bit more acquainted with Scripture, spend some more time with it, um, because it's it's really us or the shocking thing rather than his words. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Jesus was certainly as familiar as the disciples were with the buildings of the temple. What do you think the point was of them pointing out to him the buildings of the temple? Yeah, I, I, don't, I don't know. I, you know, someone might say that it was a, a literary device that's put there that gives Jesus this opening to comment on <laughs> on the coming destruction of the temple. It kind of puts a bow on the teaching for the day. But I just think maybe, you know, I don't know, every now and again, you know, if I've been if I if I go to a place with friends and there's really impressive architecture, I might just be saying, wow, I mean, look at these buildings, man. You know, I mean, you might just make an, it might just have been just that kind of a side remark. But it gave Jesus the opportunity uh, to give yet one more series of warnings for Israel's unbelief. By the way, what might have happened if 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 Israel had accepted him as Messiah? You see. Instead of going to war with the Romans, there would have been a very different solution. He would have said, no, we're not going to go to war with them. We're going to make them our brothers. We're going to accept them into the church I founded. Preach the gospel to them. Befriend them. Make them our brothers. Share the Eucharist. That, that was a very different model than beat them, beat them to death and push them back and reestablish the kingdom of David. But they wanted to go the violent route. And Jesus said, I want you to go the loving route. Love your enemy. And befriend him, make him a member of your church. So, yeah, uh, Gilbert? Yes, uh, you uh, in Matthew 23, I'm using the Revised Standard Version, uh, Catholic Edition. Uh, I only count six woes. <laughs> is uh, The seventh one, is that verse 37, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem? Could be. Uh, I, I don't know. I, I just, I just uh, said seven because from, from my own material, but... Uh, um, you, you kind of stumped me on that one, but we'll just say, yeah, that sounds, that sounds right, Gilbert. That last one, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. 
Yeah, okay. <laughs> Thank you. All right. Norma, you had a question? Yes, yes. Yes. Yes, thank you. Um, yeah, I'm trying to process the parable of the of the wedding banquet. Still, mm-hmm. um, it's like very hard. It's a very hard parable to me um, uh, when it says that um, you mentioned that the garment was the the, the our baptism garment, the, mm-hmm. the white one. But what what what's going to happen to the ones that are not wearing the, those garments? Are those the people that, you know, like the Arabs or the ones that don't believe in the Catholic Church? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. Well, that's an interesting question. I hadn't thought of it. You were heading in that direction. But let's let's talk about a couple things. First of all, just contextually in the ancient world, almost everybody, even the poor, had wedding garments because weddings were fairly common. People looked forward to going to them. There was lots of free food. <laughs> so even if you were poor, it was pretty common that you would invest in a wedding garment. But for the very poorest people, a wedding garment was provided, okay? So the point is not that this poor guy just kind of got pulled in off the street and maybe he was poor and didn't have a garment. Um, so in other words, uh, he's, there's something obnoxious about is a refusal for him to wear the garment, all right? This is a, the garment of righteousness. Now, you're asking a question that goes a little beyond the scope of this parable. So I just want to say that this parable is, generally speaking, to those who have received uh, this, this, this garment of righteousness from the Lord, uh, they're expected to wear it and bring it unstained to the judgment seat of Christ. The question you're asking is a wider question. How can those who have never known Christ or... May have, not, may, may have known him, but known him incorrectly. So, for example, it, it may, if you live in the depths of Saudi Arabia, you may have heard about Jesus, but you may have been told very strongly to reject him. And you may have been told terrible things. These Christians are blasphemers. They say that God has a son. Um, God has no son. This is a blasphemy. So, in other words, they're not going to be held to the same standard of responsibility on their judgment day that maybe you and I, who had an opportunity to hear about Christ uh, in a good and a proper way and then rejected him. So I think all we can say is regarding Muslims and uh, Hindus and others is that to the degree they could reasonably know what was righteous and to the degree they lived that, um, certainly God will judge them based on that. He will not judge them on stuff they could not have reasonably come to understand or accept. There's very few people in the world today who haven't heard of Jesus, but sometimes the Jesus they've heard of is a very distorted Jesus. So God has to take all that into account. And the Catholic Church has never held, therefore, that only card-carrying Catholics and or Christians can get to heaven. That's not our teaching. We do say that there's no salvation outside the church, so that anybody who does get to heaven will get there only by and through the grace of Jesus Christ. But sometimes that grace is operative in their life in less obvious ways than we would understand, okay? So that's about the best I can do, because that's a huge question of soteriology, and it gets us pretty far afield, all right? But don't think that that just means, you know, anyone who's not a card-carrying baptized is going to be thrown out of heaven like just like that, all right? It's not that simple. This yeah. man was willfully refusing to wear the garment of righteousness that he had been given. You see the idea? There's a a, 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 a willful rejection. Not, a, not an ignorant rejection. But then also talks about the banquet itself. Uh-huh. The banquet is the Eucharist, no? And or heaven. 
which the Eucharist celebrates the liturgy, the liturgy, you know, is a, a foretaste of, yes. Uh-huh. Because it says that um, he invites both evil and good. Mm-hmm. But they also have to put on the garment of righteousness. So in other words, the evil are invited, but they're supposed to be baptized, repent of their sins, in other words, be baptized, and then enter and wear the garment of righteousness. That's what the wedding garment symbolizes. Again, what you want to do is don't make this parable try to say more than it's trying to say. This man willfully, knowingly refuses to wear it. He's not ignorant. Oh, I didn't know we were supposed to wear it. Or, you know, this is not what we're dealing with there. Okay, that's a whole different set of uh, parameters. This parable is about someone who knowingly rejects the righteousness that they know they must live and thinks they can just walk right on into heaven. And it doesn't work that way. Thank you, Monsignor. Monsignor, Chris is writing in here and is asking, um, if the Jewish leaders had accepted Jesus, would the Gentiles still have been saved? There's there's times where uh, Chris is reading things and it seems like it's worded such that, well, only because, you know, the Jewish people rejected him, then, okay, we'll go to the plan B. Yeah, there is something of that. I mean, and St. Paul sort of suggests that in Romans 9 through 11, he's just tearing his heart out. He says, I can't understand so many of my Jewish brethren have rejected the Messiah. But he says, I've come to finally conclude this, that a hardening has come upon Israel until the full number of the Gentiles comes in and then all Israel will be saved. That is to say that there will be a great opening. Many Jews will be converted at the end. And um, But for now, he does see a connection between the hardening of the Jewish people against Christ and the inflow of the Gentiles. It's hard to say. We'd have to speculate, wouldn't we? So speculative theology alert. Put the sirens on. Uh, We can't really know. I mean, God foresaw all of this, right? So it's not like he's caught off guard and there's a plan B. It's always been the understanding that the corporately, the the, the salvation would ultimately be ordered to all the nations. So, for example, Paul says, there is this great mystery, the great mystery of faith, wherein that has now been revealed to us, namely this, that the the Gentiles are now co-heirs with the Jewish people in salvation. And uh, so this plan had always been part of God's plan. So whether or not the Jewish people accepted in large numbers or rejected, it does seem, though, there's a relationship between their hardening and the opening of the church to the Gentiles more vigorously. And that's about the best we can do. But what would have happened if it's speculative? And I would be very cautious about it. Katie Lee, I saw that you had a question. We can close with yours. Yes, uh, Monsignor, you used a word um, that I wasn't familiar with. I'm probably supposed to be, but I wasn't. It's Shema. Could you oh. explain that? The Shema is a prayer, is a Jewish prayer. Shema Yisrael Adonai Eloheinu Echad. Remember, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. Um, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind. And you, you, and it goes on, you know, the, the Shema doesn't say this, but later on it said you shall love your neighbor as yourself. So again, the Shema Israel. It's um, sorry about that. Yeah. Thank you. No, that's good. That's how we learn. Thank you, Kaylee. Well, thank you so much, Monsignor. Would it be possible to receive your blessing at the end here? Yes, Lord. The, after a long day, you went down to you went down from Bethany down into Jerusalem, and oh, after being confronted, and after exhausting day of teaching, you and we you going back up to Bethany this evening, and so Lord, we thank you for this great teaching. We thank you for your urgency. And we ask you to help us to imitate it in our own way, in a way that's appropriate to us. 
And we ask now your blessing upon all who have listened and all who will listen, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thank you so much, Monsignor. We hope you enjoyed this presentation from the Institute of Catholic Culture. If you'd like to learn more about the mission of the Institute and how you may become a part of this important work, please visit our website at www.instituteofcatholicculture.org or call us at 540-635-7155. And may the glory of Christ Church be ever more manifest upon the earth. St. John the Evangelist, pray for us.